This episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is brought to you by our season-long sponsor, Badger State Brewing, located right in the heart of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Throughout this entire season of our show, you've heard us talk about the Badger State beers we love. We don't just say that because, well, they're our sponsor, but because we truly do love their beers and think you will too. If you haven't yet tried any of Badger State's selections, we highly recommend their Grassy Place Hazy IPA and Brewski Lager, though there are many others that are also worth checking out. You can find more information about Badger State's beers, where you can get them, what's on tap at the brewery, and more by visiting badgerstatebrewing.com. If you're in the Green Bay area, stop by Badger State Brewery near Lambeau Field and let them know Cold Case Frozen Tundra sent you. August 19, 1992, Lori Deppis left the Fox River Mall after closing the graffiti store for the night. It had been a day for the most part like any other, though, as we know, that's not how it would end. That day, one that began with a routine, wake up, spend time at home, get ready, drive to work, and finish the shift, concluded with events that were anything but, a scenario that's hard to even fathom. Lori was gone without a trace, only moments after her friends heard her pull into the parking lot where she was expected to meet them. As the August sun set, a mystery arose, a question that has remained unanswered for nearly 30 years. Over the past several weeks, you've heard us recount the events of Lori's story. But the fact is, that's not entirely correct. Because when someone goes missing, the story becomes something larger. Yes, this is one that involves Lori. We tell it because of Lori, but it's not just hers. In reality, this is also a story about so many others, too. The friends and family who have never stopped looking, whose lives have never been the same since that August night. It's about the members of a community who were shocked and scared by the news, who turned out in massive numbers to help wherever they were needed. And it's a story about the investigators the members of law enforcement, Lori's own family and friends, and even some members of the public who have never stopped questioning the events of that night, who still search for the answers that have never come. This podcast, though we have aimed to tell that story, is also now part of it, through the information we've been able to assist in gathering as we've researched the case and heard from many of you, our dedicated listeners. Today we'll be discussing our role us as hosts, and you as the many individuals who have shared new and relevant information on the case. We're going to talk about what's next. I'm Matt Hiskis, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Season 2, Episode 7, The Breaks.
Hello and welcome to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, an anthropologist, university professor, and your co-host along with Matt in this ongoing investigation that hopes to answer the questions behind the disappearance of Lori Deppes. As Matt mentioned in the opening, today we're going to be taking a look at some of the information we've received during our research on the case and as we've released the podcast. Some of the tips we've received, you've heard in earlier episodes, details that made the most sense to include earlier as they impacted our understanding of the past events, such as Barbara's story about David Spanbauer stalking her daughter, or witnesses that we heard last week who told us Larry Hall's van may have been seen near the scene in the days that followed Lori's disappearance. Other tips, however, have come to us in the form of questions, theories, or even actionable leads that we've been working to follow up on. And on that note, we want to tell you right at the top that after this episode, we're going to need to take a brief break from our weekly release schedule. It'll likely last just a few weeks. There are tips we've received that, quite simply put, need to be looked into further before we can tell you exactly what they mean. We're excited that many people have come forward with information that could change the case. But with new information also comes the need for new research and fieldwork. That's right. We will be taking a short break in the series after this episode to do some of that research and work. But at the end of today's show, we'll talk about how you can stay in touch to ensure you don't miss anything new when we return. With all that out of the way, let's get into today's episode. Probably the best starting point is to discuss one of the most common pieces of information we've heard from those who have reached out to us. We've gotten many tips and questions about the possibility of Lori's remains being placed at construction sites, most notably in the marshy flooded channels created by the work to construct and pave highways 441, 114, or 10. Some people have just passed along the theory that she's there. Others have asked if we could use GPR or ground penetrating radar to search underneath the roads for human remains. Let's talk a little bit about that possibility of Lori's remains being hidden under a highway, as well as what tools would be available to search the area if deemed necessary. Sure. I should probably start by stating that, given the fact that there's never been any sign of Lori ever recovered, it's impossible to rule out any location unless it's actually searched. Beneath the highway is as possible as any other place. With that said, I do have a few things to say about theories involving construction sites, whether for a road or anything else, and their viability for hiding human remains. I'm sure there have been cases where remains were, in fact, discovered underneath the structure. If someone showed me a story of that exact thing occurring, I wouldn't be at all surprised. But in my many conversations with investigators, both in research in this case as well as through my work to help law enforcement identify bones they discover, I've often found that theories about construction sites are almost a running joke for detectives. That's not to say they don't take the information seriously. I can confirm they do follow up on any lead, pointing to a construction site or otherwise. But the construction theories have reached a sort of legend status due to the fact that they seem to crop up in every case where a body is not immediately found. It's as though there is something in the human brain that causes us to say, we've never found what we're looking for. Maybe that's because the thing that we're looking for can't be found because it's under something. Exactly. In fact, during our first season of this show, in which we searched for the lost remains of Starkey Swenson, we received countless tips from sources who wanted to pass along that Starkey's remains were buried under an airport runway in Appleton. 
The runway had been under construction at the time Starkey Swenson went missing. Amid the climate of renewed community interest, sparked at least in part by the look back at the Starkey Swenson case, Starkey's remains were actually discovered last year at High Cliff State Park. Beyond the fact that the prevalence of construction-related theories decreases the likelihood that it is correct in any one case, there are some practical considerations of hiding a body at a construction site that need to be taken into account. Yeah, that's right. I actually do agree with people who think it's a possibility that a perpetrator looking to dispose of evidence might panic, look around, and see the large pits often created during construction and think it's a good spot to hide human remains. But I also think it's more likely a killer would think twice about it and decide to find a new spot. Or if the perpetrator did place a body at a construction site, I believe it would be quickly found. If you're looking to hide a human body, your goal, of course, is to keep it from being discovered. You'd want a spot people are not going to be visiting often, or at least not poking around and digging. A construction site, in that sense, is actually one of the worst places you could choose. You know for a fact that there are teams of people walking around each day. You know they're disturbing the soil, digging wherever they need, and closely checking their work. Unless you're extremely familiar with construction, or even responsible for the construction yourself, it's a pretty tricky and unpredictable environment to choose to hide evidence. The likelihood seems high that it would be discovered. Yeah, I agree. You also have to consider that construction is not permanent. This is especially true of roadways, which are often rerouted, refinished, and so on. In fact, some of the highways often connected to the Lori Deppis theories have undergone rework without any evidence turning up. That's not to say it's at all impossible that the theory of Lori being under a highway is correct. I do think it's improbable, but would never discount any possibility without actual investigation to eliminate it. I also want to add that we still very much appreciate the input of the many people who shared the theory of the highway construction connection with us. On that note, some people have reached out to ask if GPR would be a viable technology for searching beneath the roadways, given that no one will likely get permission to tear up the road anytime soon. What do you think? Well, unfortunately, GPR is not likely to be a whole lot of help in this scenario. Despite some common misconceptions, often based on how it's portrayed in the movies and TV, that basically GPR can provide a 3D image of the ground beneath the scanner, the reality is that it's simply capable of showing areas where the ground has been disturbed and most of the time the depth of that disturbance. A GPR readout looks much more like a series of wavy lines stacked on top of each other. It's not very similar at all to the X-ray or ultrasound image of the ground below that you might imagine or have seen in the media. If you're in a seemingly untouched area, a field, a park, or something like that, a hit on GPR showing an underground disturbance can be extremely helpful. It gives you a great indicator of a place to manually dig if you'd like to determine what's the cause of the disturbance. Even that can often turn out to be rocks, tree roots, and more. But at a construction site where we can pretty much guarantee all the ground's been disturbed and building whatever structure you're hoping to look beneath, GPR would unfortunately show you just that. The ground's all been disturbed. At a construction site, GPR is also going to show things that are buried in the ground like rebar and different types of rock and gravel material. Distinguishing that between human remains would be very difficult. Unfortunately, if the theory that Lori's remains have been hidden beneath the road are true, 
It would likely require future construction on that road before any evidence is turned up. Let's turn to another area in which we've received a number of new tips in recent weeks. Our fifth episode in this series focused on a man we've been calling Tim, which is not his real name. For many who have followed this case, the introduction of Tim's story was new information. It had not been widely reported to the public prior to this podcast, outside a brief mention in 2019 when Lori's case was featured on the Dr. Phil show. As the podcast aired and local news stations picked up the new details, we received several helpful bits of information from others who, despite our use of a pseudonym, recognized him and wanted to reach out. Nearly every person who reached out was female. Most knew him through friend connections or had worked with him at the mall. From the people who reached out, we pretty consistently heard that Tim behaved in ways that were just slightly off. One woman mentioned that Tim, ostensibly wanting to express his romantic interest in her, would show up at the house where she lived with her parents at the time, bearing various little gifts. She couldn't recall that she'd ever told him where she lived. She also had not reciprocated Tim's interest in any way. Others have told us similar stories. It seemed Tim's manner of pursuing romance was often off-putting. It made the young women who reached out feel uncomfortable perhaps even vaguely threatened, though not explicitly or violently. It's important to point out that although this additional information certainly helps further develop a picture of who Tim was and how he was behaving around the time Lori Deppis went missing, it certainly doesn't make him guilty of the crime. His story is intriguing, but not conclusive. There have been some tips we've received about Tim which we believe to be new, or at least not sure whether they've been presented to detectives at earlier stages in the investigation. As these details might prove relevant to the case, we've reached out to investigators to ensure that they have that information and can choose to follow up if they determine any of the potential leads are, in fact, new and important. Because we do not know if those tips may ultimately become relevant in the ongoing investigation, we do not want to risk jeopardizing them by sharing them publicly at this time. These potential new leads are one of the reasons we are planning a short break in our weekly schedule, in the hope that more information will be uncovered in the very near future. And on that topic of reasons for the brief pause in our release schedule, there's one potential lead we received which, to be honest, we believe to be quite exciting, or at least one that has very real potential to be groundbreaking news. Unfortunately, we need to break from our script here as the next part of the discussion is not going to go on as we had originally planned. The reason for this is, though in a very real sense exciting, also disappointing for Matt and I, as we'd hoped to share with you the specifics of the tips submitted to our show, which we believe has a real chance of leading to a significant development in the case. As you can imagine might happen with information deemed potentially important by investigators, the possible lead we received eventually made its way to those most actively involved in looking into the case. They've recently gotten back in touch with us and asked that we give them some time to follow up before releasing the details on our show. This is undoubtedly a disappointment for us as we hope to share that story and the key information with you today. But in another sense, it is very exciting for the investigation 
and for the search for answers. It means that those handling the case agree that our tip, though it's only just that at this stage, a potential lead that requires further work, does carry enough weight to warrant keeping the information within the investigation, at least for a few weeks. At this point, we don't know what the result of the efforts to follow up on our recent leads will be. At minimum, they mean there is movement in the case, work that will either eliminate the new possibilities and help us focus on an answer, or just maybe break the case open. Cold Case Frills and Tundra will be back with updates, hopefully in the very near future, with more information on these leads, as well as some of the other bits of information we or detectives in charge of the case are currently following. We do think there's a chance, not a certainty, though nothing in this case has been certain for decades, but a real chance that we may return with new answers in this case for the first time in decades. If you want to make sure you don't miss an update as soon as we are back with more information, likely in the next few weeks, be sure to follow Cold Case Frozen Tundra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also keep in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Frozen Tundra Podcast or by signing up for email alerts through the Stay In Touch page on our website, frozentundrapodcast.com. We will be announcing the return of new episodes through all avenues available to us. If you have new information on the case, please continue to reach out to us through the Contact Us section on our website. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available from Pixabay. All other music used in this show was written and recorded by us.